I invite you to reach for your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, John's Gospel, chapter 6. Today we will be looking at verses 41 to 59, concluding a discussion that Jesus has been having with a crowd that's been chasing him since he multiplied the bread and the loaves. We've noted in um, the last two um, sermons about this crowd and this interaction uh, that they have come looking for physical bread. They want material gain. They want something out of Jesus. Last week we saw Jesus reveal to them, I am what you need. I am that which you desperately lack. I am the bread of life. And he said boldly, it's only by trusting in me by faith that any of you will live. And you would think that 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 would be good news, but they still are um, choosing not to believe. They're still being willfully stubborn. And and they're still trying to get something out of Jesus. They're going to try one last tactic this morning. Now, to be fair, it's a very effective tactic. We know this, especially those who have children. They're going to try the powerful tactic of grumbling and complaining. Often yields results as they wear down, as they beat us into submission. We will find Jesus is harder to wear down than many of us. But Jesus will lovingly and carefully yet again listen to their critiques and and point them to the truth. That is, point them to himself. And so with all of that being said, I invite you to follow along with me as we read um, the remainder of this section. I want to begin in John chapter 6 verse 41 and read through the 59th verse. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How, do he, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. 
This is the word of the Lord. Would you please bow with me as we ask his blessing upon it. Dear Heavenly Father, all of us, if we are honest in our hearts this day, can be prone to stubbornness. We can be prone to grumbling and complaining. We can be prone to wanting our way to the exclusion of the truth. And so, Lord, may we use this text this morning as a mirror. May we see the response of the Jews and may we hear the words of Jesus and may we be transformed by them. That we may live holy lives, that we may live lives that trust fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ and not upon ourselves. Father, you know we need this word. You have given it for us this day, so we ask that it go forth in power. By the power of your Holy Spirit and through the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, bless your people in this time, I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. What does it mean to grumble or to complain? I love dictionaries and looking up meanings of words, and I like Merriam-Webster. I had to look it up. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines grumbling as murmur of discontent. And so it is a voicing a complaint in a low and low-pitched way, a, a, a um, think of the adults in Charlie Brown. If you've watched the, the old cartoon, um, adults never speak. They're, they've just got this kind of wah, wah, wah sound to them. That would be murmuring. And, I, and as, as I was thinking about that this week, and I've had several conversations with people, I, I thought we could do one better. Complaining or grumbling could be to make a petition without any effort toward resolution. I think a complaint, a, a true complaint or a true grumble is one that you make without any help to its solution. I really wish someone would step up and sweep the sidewalks in my neighborhood. The leaves are getting out of control as you sit there drinking your coffee beside your broom. That would be grumbling or complaining. You know, I, I really wish they would do something about this drop-off uh, for my children at school. They, they really need some um, hall monitors or some people out here with vests on directing traffic as you sit there with time on your hands that you could volunteer. You know, grumbling or complaining really is just that. It's, 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 this, it's this form of frustration without action. But I can even take it one step deeper because what are we really doing when we are grumbling or complaining at the heart, at the, at the root level? What we're saying is, God, your circumstances aren't sufficient for me. Really and truly, if we go to the heart level, grumbling or complaining is blasphemy against God. God, you don't know enough. God, your way is not good enough. God, your plan is not pure enough. God, I would do it differently. God, I would do it better. God, you're wrong in this. God, why did you give it to me in this way? Now, many of us don't think of grumbling that way, and we certainly don't grumble like that. But if we search our hearts and ask, last time you complained, isn't that what you were doing? And, and here's the, the interesting thing about our text this morning. The Jews were doing that. They were grumbling to God's face. They were complaining to God. 
You are not doing it right. You are not saying it clear enough. You are not making sense. Oh, how bold that they would grumble in the face of God. And yet, we have them on one side of the argument, and then on the other side, we have Jesus Christ who listens with patience and care and love, and yet again jumps back into his argument. He's made his case over and over, and yet he, with patience and long-suffering love, works with this stubborn crowd. This alone should bring us comfort this morning because we are a stubborn people including myself, chief of all. Well, what I want us to do this morning is look at our text, and I want us to see it from those two sides. The side of man, man who looks for worldly answers to spiritual problems, and then the side of God, who takes action to care for our spiritual needs. We're going to see this in four different sections of our text. Let's begin with man and how man looks for worldly answers to those spiritual problems. Jesus ends with a high point on verse 40. He tells the, the crowd, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. I will raise Him up on the last day. He could not have given them anything more precious, more important, or more needed than these words. He's giving them the gift of eternal life. He's giving them salvation. He's giving them Himself. And telling them how it will be acquired. Look upon the Son and believe in Him. And yet, and yet, even with that great revelation, with that great truth from Jesus Christ, the very next words, so the Jews grumbled. Jesus offers them the greatest thing that they could be offered, and yet the people grumble. And they're doing this in his presence. It says they grumble about him, but they're doing it in front of him. So they're really grumbling to him. It, it's one of those conversations where you're, you're, you're whispering, but you're whispering loud enough the people around you can hear because you really want them to know what you're saying. That's kind of what's going on here. They're, they're grumbling about Jesus in front of his face. And what do they all grumble? What is their complaint? What is, why won't they believe what he's saying? Well, they've got two problems. Well, they got more than that, but here they've got two problems. One, the Jews grumbled because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Finally, they catch on. Jesus is not multiplying any more bread. He says, I am the bread. So they, are, they at least clue on to, oh, he's, he's speaking metaphorically now. He's not going to produce any more bread. That's kind of what we came for, right? Well, what are we going to do? We wanted bread. Where are we going to get bread? Jesus is not giving bread. He instead tells them, I am bread, which is nonsensical, right? A man cannot be bread. This defies logical reasoning. But the Jews were so zoomed in, they were so fixated on this need, this desire for physical gain, for, for worldly bread, that they're missing the spiritual truth that he's saying here. He's saying something profound, but they're so keyed in on bread that they cannot get away from it to, to understand the conversation. So that's their first problem. They, their problem with Jesus is he's not doing what they want him to do. Secondly, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They have a problem. 
Jesus Christ is claimed to be the Son of God. He is claimed to descend from heaven. He's claimed heaven as his home. But they're looking and they're, they're pulling out the yearbook or the newspaper and they're going, Mary and Joseph, and um, we know how that works. When a man and a woman get together, there comes a baby and he's got two parents. So how can he be from heaven if he's got a mother and a father? You see, while we read the scriptures and we believe by faith that, that Mary was a virgin when she um, gave birth to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, most people didn't buy that. That, that wasn't... They could see. They said, there's a woman, there's a man. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. They weren't married yet and they had a kid, but it happens. And so when Jesus says, I'm from heaven, my father is in heaven, they're going, no, he's not. He's Joseph. We know him. And so again, they're, they're so zoomed in. They're so focused on what they can see right in front of them. They're missing the greater spiritual reality here. They're missing the marvel and the wonder. They're missing all of the prophecies. They're missing the promises all throughout Scripture. They're so focused on their immediate circumstances that they're missing what the Lord is saying. And that's how we all are as human beings. We're so focused at times. We can get so fixated, so intent on what's right in front of us that we miss what's going on around us. The big picture We can do this in prayer. I, I find I'm most prone to this in prayer. When I'll go to God and I have a need, Lord, I, I really need this, whatever it is. I, I need an A on this test. I, I need to uh, pass this. I need to have success here. I need to find this today. And then what happens when the Lord doesn't answer that prayer? We think, well, God doesn't care. But what if the Lord didn't give you that thing because there was something else he had in mind? What if the Lord was working in your life and in your heart to a greater degree in other areas? What if the Lord was saying no to that so we could say yes to something else? See how easy it is to get so fixated on the, the very minute detail that we can miss what the Lord is doing? It's certainly what happened to the Jews. Jesus is revealing to them divine secrets here. And yet there's, well, there's no bread and he's got a mother and a father, so this is not right. And so they're just, they're working themselves up in a lather. Man's natural tendency is to look for worldly answers. It is to look for logical conclusions and solutions to divine problems. But that's not how God works. God works in a completely different way. As we turn from this is how man is dealing with this situation to how Jesus is dealing with it, we see that Jesus is doing three different things here. This is our second point. Jesus is fulfilling the divine plan which was set out from the beginning. This is not new. This was not a surprise. Jesus didn't say this and they went, oh, we've never heard that before. At least they shouldn't have. Look with me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, and not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus starts quoting Scripture. They're complaining, Jesus, you're not making sense here. You're saying some weird things. We don't like it. And so Jesus says, listen to what we have already told you in the Old Testament. 
He points them back to the Old Testament scriptures, particularly in this text, Isaiah 54, 13. That's where that quote is, they shall be taught by God. He's calling him to one of the mighty prophets. That prophecy in Isaiah 54 is interesting. It's a prophecy of hope for the people of God. We all, or at least most of us, probably know Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant, the prophecy that speaks to how Christ will be a sacrifice and give very clear details on the way in which he will die centuries before the Romans are even invented who inv- or, or born who invent crucifixion. Well, Isaiah 54, the chapter following that is one of hope. It's one of deliverance. It's one of rescue. And so paired together, we actually get the gospel in Isaiah 53 and 54 combined. God will send a deliverer to die for his people and they shall have hope of rescue. That's what those two chapters say together. So what does Jesus say here? Go back to the Old Testament. I'm that sacrifice. I'm the one to bring hope to my people. We told you a long time ago And that would have been been pretty jarring for the Jewish people, right? Because what was their task as the Jewish people? To know the Old Testament scriptures. They were to know the word of God. They were to keep the word of God. They were to live out the word of God. They were to teach the word of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is you have failed. You have failed. Because what you should know, you have forgotten. What you should be joyous about, you are angry about. What you should accept, you are complaining about. Jesus tells them, no one has seen the Father except the Son, showing that Jesus came down from heaven. He, He talks about his relationship to God the Father. He shows that this is prophetic, that this has been from old. This is not something new. And yet they're still surprised. They, they, they still don't get it. And so what does he do? What does Jesus do as a response? He again points them to himself. He points them to his sacrificial work that would soon take place. He shows them what must happen for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus offers himself as the source of life. Verses 47 and following, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And again, he repeats that powerful statement, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus effectively calls the Jews to believe in him. Believe in who he is and believe in what he came to do. See how he again takes them back to the Old Testament. He understands they're not getting it. They don't believe him. So he takes them to the Old Testament scriptures, what they should believe and what they should know. He takes them to the Exodus. Remember in the wandering in the wilderness how God rained manna from heaven. 
How miraculous is that? If you go back and you read it, they woke up in the morning and, and wafers were on the ground like dew from the heavens. Bread rained from the sky to, 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 to feed the people a double portion on the day prior to the Sabbath. And God provided for them. For 40 years of wandering, he provided for them. The text says in the Exodus, their sandals never wore out, their, their water skins never cracked. They had which they needed. And the only ones that died were the ones that were promised to die for their disobedience against God. And yet death did eventually come to them all. They ate the bread that God provided in the wilderness and they died. It was just bread. It was symbolic of, of God's providence and God's care for them, but they still died. It was probably good bread, and yet they still died. But Jesus says here, I'm not like that bread. This is the bread that comes from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What Jesus Christ offers to us is eternal in nature. Now, let's be very clear in what we're saying and what we're not. Everyone in this room will have one of two things happen to you. And I'm not trying to be morbid this morning. You will all die or Jesus will come back first. Every single one of us. It's a guaranteed fact. Those are the two states of us. Either we're all going to face death and he's going to come much later than all of our lifetimes or Jesus will come back and we will be transformed at that moment. Death rate is 100% given the margin of error for the few in the Bible. Um, chariots of fire, it, it's a bizarre thing. But we will face death. We're going to die. That's the effect of sin. We go back to Genesis 3. God told Adam and Eve, he warned them, if you eat of this tree that I tell you not to eat of it, on that day you shall die. And not only you, but your posterity after you. Adam and Eve, as our, Adam is our federal head, brought death into the world, into our reality. We will suffer death. Knowing Christ won't change that physically. We will still face death. It will come. However, spiritually speaking we will live we will live we will live for eternity we will live in the presence of the Savior we will live in a resurrected state in a glorified body we will live in a way even better than the life we have now here's an even more interesting thing we will live in a better state than Adam and Eve before the fall have you ever thought about that? Adam and Eve before the fall walked with God and he left the garden. We will live in God's presence as his sons and daughters. We will have a higher state post-resurrection than Adam and Eve had prior to the fall and the sin. All because Jesus Christ offers himself as the second Adam, as the sacrifice, as the payment for Genesis 3... And he says, the bread that I give you that, that allows us to have this is my flesh. It is me. It is my life. It is my reality. This also helps us. There's some, some fascinating heresies you can read about in the early centuries of the church that Jesus was a ghost. 
because they really don't want anything bad to happen to God. And they say, there's no way bad could happen to God. So Jesus was a ghost. He was a phantom. He looked real. Well, Jesus again and again, he eats, he sleeps, he's sad. Um, he's offering his flesh here. That's grounding it in reality. This is real. This is not a video of this happening. What I'm going to offer is really going to happen. And then our last section here, he, he really gets into what he means. And he, he does it in, 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 in honestly a graphic way, but one that certainly grabbed their attention. Because they're still grumbling. They're still complaining. He has explained himself. He's offered himself. He's, he's spoken to the reality of what they need. He's shown their foolishness. And yet they are still complaining. And now, even more than that, they're kind, of, they're kind of shocked and horrified. Because what has Jesus told them? Well, what you need is my body and my blood. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Even some of us, as we read that, we kind of go, ooh. Right? Let's be honest. We can, we can admit that. And, and while it's tempting here to, to point this to the Lord's Supper, and, and I know certainly some commentators do, um, others say that more than, than the, the table in mind here is this. Well, let me say this first. In the Jewish culture, uh, drinking of blood was strictly forbidden in the Levitical law. It was, it was forbidden. Also, eating of man's flesh was an abomination. So what Jesus just said, you don't do it. And so their mind, again, because they're focused on the literal, they can't see the spiritual. They're going, oh my, we've got a problem. This man is crazy. But what is Jesus saying here? What does it mean to have body and to have blood? Well, it means to have life. In the blood, there is life. We sing songs. There's nothing but the blood. There's power in the blood. We, we talk about the, the life blood. And so what is Jesus saying here, particularly in this last section, as he, he really kind of wraps up his conclusion, he's saying, I'm giving you all of me that makes me, me. I'm giving you myself, my life, my essence, my reality, my flesh, my blood. I am giving it up for you. Not as symbolic, it's not like he's going to prick his finger and, and shed a drop of blood and go, there's my blood, y'all be saved. No, he gives it all. If we were to go to the, to the record of the crucifixion, it's a very important point that we often overlook. Jesus dies and the, the, the spear is pierced into his side. And what runs out? Blood and water. Why is that significant? Well, some people say that it's, it's spiritual and physical. That could be true. But in a biological system, in the human body, when the pump stops pumping, our hearts are actively pumping blood as we speak, mine a little more than yours, there's blood in, there's bad stuff out, but when the pump stops, the fluids pull up. Again, I'm not trying to be morbid this morning. And if we were pierced post-mortem, you know what would come out? Blood and water, because the pump is not pumping. So what are we told in that moment when Jesus' side is pierced? He's dead. This be this way. He's dead. His, his, the, the spear pierced his heart. His blood and water ran free. What is Jesus offering to the Jews? What is Jesus offering to us today? The solution to our problem, our greatest need. He says, I am the bread of life. Those who eat of me will not die, but will live. And I will raise them up on the last day. He's offering all of himself. His body, his blood, the totality of himself. Now I just conclude this morning by reminding us, we're still a stubborn people. 
we're still a lot like the Jewish people. We have heard the truth today. We have heard the good news today. And we will still go out of this place prone to look for worldly solutions to spiritual problems. We will be prone to trust in ourselves rather than trust in God. We will be prone to listen to the words of the world instead of listening to the words of our Savior. So what do we do about it? We plead with God. God, help me see you first. Help me see your word and your way first. Help me hope and trust and rest and believe in you above all else. And if we do not yet trust in the Lord, we need to turn our hearts to him today as my brother Dan prayed. Come today to the Lord while there is still time. Resurrection day is coming soon. Man is prone to grumble. Our Savior is prone to give. How much will he give? He gave it all. For sinners like you and like me, if we but take him by faith, we shall live. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's, this is one of those passages, it's easy to preach and hard to live because I am prone to grumble. I am prone to complain, to see my own way, to not trust in my Savior. Forgive me, Lord, and forgive your people. Help us to hope and trust and rest in you and in your goodness. Help us to not look to the ways of this world, but to look to what you have given us in your word. May we cling to you through prayer. May we be reminded of your sacrifice in the sacraments. May we talk of you often as we fellowship with one another. Lord, strengthen our faith and convict those that need convicting. Encourage those that need encouraging. Rebuke those that need rebuking. And love those that need loving. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.